Hello, Internet friends, and welcome back to Love Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm Andy Boel. And I'm Alex Ruiz, and as always, we are here to brighten your day, anchor your soul, and tell you how to live your lives in that order. And Andy, it's just the two of us again, and the sweet dulcet tones of Matt Calder have left for now, but we'll have to get him on sooner rather than later again. Yeah, I'm not even fucking around. The number of people who listen regularly who were like, we really like Matt. Matt should be around all the time. Matt's voice is so great. Matt's voice is so velvety. Okay, I happen to know for a fact that one was just your wife. Well, yeah, but I fully agree with it. I don't know if I'd call Matt's voice. I think Matt has a creamier voice than he does velvety. Like, it's a very, it's very, it's very. Hi, Matt. You have a very creamy voice. (laughs) I mean, I've I've stuck my uh, creamy I I can buy. You know, also the fact that Matt's made it pretty clear he gets embarrassed when we shower compliments on him makes me really want to go. No, it's it's a reach. It's a rich umber velvet and makes me Ooh, feel safe. Umber. Matt's voice doesn't make me feel safe, but it does make me feel dangerous, which Ooh. you know, in a in a way, is its own delight. Hey hey mom, uh, thanks for listening. Love you. So uh, I can admit this freely. I can admit this freely because um, no one I literally one person I work with listens to this podcast and I happen to know she's cool. But I've like I'm not seriously looking for a new job right now, but I've like started casually just like, oh, OK, here's here's a thing that just like slid across my desk. What does this look like? Mm. And I have to cotton to the idea of, oh, shit, if that if I if I were to switch switch jobs or employers i'd probably have to like y'all i work a four-day work week right now granted they're 11 hour days but like i work a four-day work week i have fridays off it's so nice and the idea of having to go back to like normie hours is is not pleasant to me but also like i get home at like i leave for work really really early and i get home really late at night four days a week and that's kind of its own bitch so uh, i hate change andrew change makes me uncomfortable but also like sometimes things kind of suck for their own reasons i mean the grass is always greener my man but you know change doesn't need to be the worst thing ever I'm allergic to grass, you bitch. (laughs) So it is always greener on the other side because you can't touch it. Uh, Hate it. (laughs) Oh, God. I'm sorry. I think I interrupted you. What were you about to say? Oh, some some terrible pun about... Or not terrible pun. Some terribly depressing anecdote about, you know, as, as the guy who is... At four and a half years at the same job, change doesn't need to be a scary thing, Alex. <laughs> Jesus Christ, I, I so I can't imagine doing four and a half years of anything. Isn't your four Most and a half year wedding anniversary coming up? I mean, like career-wise, <laughs> and no, like my three-year anniversary passed like five months ago. So technically, your four and a half anniversary is coming up. Just... Look, my marriage is one of the only things that's like consistently awesome in my life. <laughs> so it's like my marriage, this podcast, and I, I don't know, like 
I'm getting better at playing guitar again. That's all that's working right right now. There you go. What more do you need? Uh, psychological health? Uh, like Fair enough. Sleep? 400-pound deadlift? I can think of lots of shit, dude. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I should have thought better before opening that can of worms. I'm sorry. I interrupted you again. What were you about to say? Oh, you know. And another thing. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> We've gotten to the point where these come out pretty darn quickly after we released them. But, you know, memes still have a very short shelf life. But right now, the biggest trend is the decade photo review phenomena right now. People taking pictures of themselves from 2009 versus pictures of 2019 and showing everybody their glow ups. And you know, sure, just, I did one. Yeah, you did do one. You were hot then, you're hot now, and you're going to be hot in 10 years. Yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> like. I don't get why people are like, oh my God, I can't believe how much I've changed. Or, oh my God, I can't believe that I look so different. From... Like, no, I was hot back then. I'm hella hot now. Like, I'm just a good looking guy. Like, and so are all, all of y'all are good looking too. Like, deal with it. Amen. We're all beautiful yeah. people. If you're listening to yeah. this podcast, you're beautiful. So are you going to do one, Andy? You know, I really have no interest in doing one. Mariah did one <laughs> um, of the couple of us, and I quite like those two pictures of us. And, and really, you know, I'm I'm not going to get any extra endorphin boost by doing one of my own, so. <laughs> I mean, that's fair. I... You know, what's funny is I, when I did mine, I was I actually took mine from a picture of me and Stephanie. I was tempted to use one that Mariah had actually taken. Sure, sure. Of us, like, because there was a point where we got Mariah to take photos of us when we were like nineteen and fetuses, basically. Like, <laughs> and I had my I was wearing like a shitty Andy Warhol T-shirt and like. Stephanie, like, was in this... I think she was in, like, this bright pink with, like, jeans. We still have some of those photos hanging in our apartment right now. I was about like, to say, that's, I, I know that photo shoot. Y'all were on some swings. <laughs> yeah, no, we were. We walked around a playground in Avalon Park in Orlando, Florida, and it was super fun, and we were precious and innocent and big Splendid. and bright-eyed. And... <laughs> Shiny and new. Uh, you know, the financial crisis had only just happened and we didn't know it was going to hit us at all because, like, we were still in college. And Oh, that's what I want to do. I want to, like, take a, a debt comparison of the past decade. <laughs> oh, Which actually, you know, you two, you, you two specifically would be the perfect people to do about that because you were just starting college versus, you know, being graduated for as long as you have been. I want to, I want to see your debts blow up. Andrew, do you know what debts I had when I had, when I was taking that photo shoot? I used my first credit card to buy my 12 string guitar, which I still own. <laughs> Because Sam Ash had a deal where if you signed up for the credit card and bought something, there was no interest for 15 months. So I was like, wait, so I can buy this guitar, pay like 20 or 30 bucks a month, and it'll, it, and I'll 
not have to pay any interest on it. Yes, I am buying this 12-string electric acoustic guitar, which again is sitting in my, like, right next to my living room right now. It is hanging from a wall next to my window. It's beautiful. But my debt was, like, 280 bucks on that guitar. I'm I'm sitting here thinking I've I've cracked it and this is a great idea and nothing's gonna talk me out of it. <laughs> you're you're making the better case to be like young innocent hadn't gone to college yet versus and owed and owed two hundred something dollars on a twelve string acoustic electric washburn cutaway guitar versus being featured in in what was it the wall street journal for uh you and your wife's comparative debts and the choices you've had to make as people to deal with them basically yeah yeah. (laughs) so i i'd be down for this challenge if you think you can make it go viral there are a lot of sad millennials who i think can make it go viral (laughs) and then go back and listen to our debt episode I can always trust in you to bring it back to an old episode. That's right. Just just for the plug. And the, you know what? This is like, this is our 36th episode. I feel like as we get closer to like 50 or 100, we just have more and more shit we can comment on. Oh, yeah. That, was, twi- that was the secret goal always of, of that being just, just we're going to get more and more self-referential and up our own assholes as this goes. Well, I mean, we already followed a stupid number of X-Men accounts. That's true. Because we already followed Jay and Miles explain the X-Men on our on the official LHR Twitter. That's at LHR Pod. That's at LHR P O D listeners. Um we we were already following a bunch of them, so I feel like we do doing the X-Men episode was just to justify how much we retweet Jay and Miles and oh, yeah. Battle of the Atom and Xavier Files. And all these comic book writers and Kelly Sue DeConnick and everybody else. You're not wrong. <laughs> yeah, no. It's just in that case, it was, you know, predictive. It was it was getting ahead of the issue. So now we can justify it. If, uh, if tweets were tax deductible, we would be all set. Oh, wouldn't we just? <laughs> oh. You want to get started? Yeah, yeah. I was trying to think of a book segue, but it wasn't coming to me. Um, so Look, on... it's a nerdy-ass topic. So... It, it pretty much is, but near and dear to me. So every episode yeah. on love-hate relationship, you know, Alex pointed out this is our 36th episode. But maybe you're a new listener, you read the title, and this is your first. So welcome. Every episode, one of us talks about something we love. The other talks about something that they hate. And then we take your relationship questions. And this week, it's my love. And you read the title. We're talking about The Hobbit, which is like I've been reflecting on it more and more as we were writing the notes for this episode. Truly one of my most favorite beloved books at uh, of all time. If I have to go to a party and tell somebody like, Okay, what's a book that like encapsulates all of this? The answer is probably The Hobbit. So, okay. turning your own shtick back around you, I, I want to ask you, Alex, what was the first like novel you ever read? Not the first picture book, not the first, you know, serialized children's chapter book where there was 40 of them, but what was the first novel? Honestly, um, so I've, I've had various answers for this, 
and it's been pointed out to me um, by the people involved. I-, I used to have a habit of stealing my older sister's books and reading them. Uh, and sometimes I would steal her school books because I thought that, like, she was reading them for fun when really, no, she did not, in <laughs> fact, want to read Great Three Musketeers. She had to read Three Musketeers. But it fucked with my timeline because um, I've gotten the ages wrong on this. So the first book that I do remember stealing from my sister and reading and i'm reasonably sure of i understand the timeline and this is a book that wasn't the goosebumps that she kept or something like that probably the witch of blackbird pond okay which are you familiar i i had to read that for elementary school myself at some point in time maybe middle school yeah yeah, it was one of those, like, Johnny Tremaine or, like, one of, one of those that you just, it was a historical fiction, like, YA-ish, like, not even ish, like, middle grade novel that was clearly designed so that Scholastic could sell 900,000 copies across schools and, you know, little children learning about Pilgrim Times could read a novel about it instead of a textbook. Um, actually, surprisingly, a delightful, delightful novel, uh, about, like, it, it's, like, the least witch Bernie witch Bernie book <laughs> ever. Right. Like, like, they don't, they don't go to lynch the old crone until the end of the book, and even then, it, like, gets seriously undercut, and, you know, nothing big happens at the end. Spoilers. Witch of Blackbird Pond is more of a, like, journey, not destination kind of novel. But, you know, it's quite delightful. Uh, but I do remember reading that sometime before the age of 10. Uh, I think having stolen my sister's copy of it. And, you know, I enjoyed the hell out of that. But that was a chapter book that I don't know if it was the first, but that was probably the first one that, like, jumps out, stands out in my head as one that, you know, stuck with me. Okay. So, Witch of Blackbird Pond. All right. That's a great answer. And, you know, apologies for uh, anybody who was desperately avoiding those Witch of Blackbird Pond spoilers. But... I think that shit came out in, like, 1983. <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> no, that's No, uh, that's a really great answer. Um, as I suppose you and our listeners can guess, my answer is The Hobbit. You know, I was around the same age. I was, I was 10 or 11, and it was the first book that I read cover to cover that wasn't, you know, Animorphs or the Bailey School Kids or the Silver Age X-Men Omnibus from the library or, you know, any any book that, you know, I was having to read for school because honestly, I don't remember much of those besides The Witch of Blackburn Pond and like Hatchet. But no, written by John Ronald Royal Tolkien in 1937, The Hobbit is a fantasy children's novel about the adventures of Bilbo Baggins, the titular hobbit who is semi-reluctantly thrown into an epic quest to recapture a dwarven kingdom from an evil dragon that took it over many years ago. Far over the misty mountains cold And, you know, just to start the discussion, it feels so weird to me to be giving a plot synopsis for The Hobbit because I feel like it's a household name for books, like, at least in my house, certainly. You know, this... um... I mean, it wasn't wasn't for me, but I... In fairness, English language fantasy novels were not 
super prominent in, you know, a Colombian household, or at least my Colombian household. Sure, sure, um, fair. So I, I actually, I bring this up to say I appreciate you giving the synopsis because I didn't know anything about The Hobbit, honestly, until the Lord of the Rings movies came out, the Peter Jackson original Lord of the Rings trilogy. I don't know what the fuck Lord of the Rings was until then. Um, and then, you know, I learned about The Hobbit after getting introduced to it through those movies. So sure. I, granted, the la- it's a different landscape now than it was back then, but I appreciate the synopsis, you know? Like, I don't think everyone has that, and I, I wouldn't assume it. And that's a really fair point, and that's something I shouldn't do, because, like, like yeah, saying it out loud, it, it, it makes me realize, like, like this was a cornerstone of my own childhood, but my dad was a huge Doctor Who D and D fantasy nerd. Like sure. the first time The Hobbit was something I experienced was when he read it to me and my baby brother, like every night for a couple of weeks as as we would go to sleep, and that happened more than once in my childhood. So no, you you really bring up a good point that especially for you know, non-white men. The Hobbit isn't, <laughs> you know, a household literary name. I, I would. I'm not. I'm not trying to undercut your no, point. No, I, I like. It's, it's an interesting aspect to think about. So, I think it's adorable that your dad read the not read the Hobbit to you. Like that is freaking precious. Please continue. I I, I don't want to derail you. I, I'm very <laughs> invested in this actually. Both as a fan of the Hobbit and you know I've read your notes. This is this this has a lot of sweetness to it. it so please go ahead. It really does. This is like you know talking about we just talked about the X Men and you know gushed over Storm and Nightcrawler and Cyclops and you know talked about reading those as as a kid and and I certainly loved them but like this book this book that I am currently holding in my hands and is the same copy that I read and my dad read I'm I'm flipping through this this is a, a version of the Hobbit that came in a box set with the entire Lord of the Rings and it's this the box is this beautifully painted like mountainscape with a dragon and if you look closely you can see Gollum crawling out of a cave I'm holding a book from 1978 that I flip through and I see little drawings of runes I, I on, on the back cover I drew pictures of the swords Orcrist and Glamdring which are the magic swords that they find in a cave on the the first page i wrote as a 10 year old this belongs to andy boel and a phone number that i forgot i had ever had (laughs) this was the first thing i was like i'm gonna leave this in a park somewhere and when you find it return this book to me um this this book means so much to me and this book you know so tolkien to to follow my my formula a little bit tolkien like is one of the preeminent grandfathers of modern fantasy that's like that i think that's a very reasonable claim to make you know tolkien basically redefined what modern fantasy tropes and themes were in a lasting way that that hasn't gone away yet you know setting tropes of the genre like the idea that dwarves are these warrior miners and elves are these refined classic 
bowmen, long-haired, beautiful people who live in the trees, wizards being more like D&D than King Arthur. And, you know, inventing an entire fantasy race of hobbits who have gone on to be called halflings in anything else that wasn't a, a Tolkien book or a movie. And, like, mm. the first part of that, the idea that J.R.R. Tolkien made all these lasting things stick is is a big part as to why I love The Hobbit, because it feels to me like something foundational and that is absolutely amplified by the fact that as i've said numerous times already this this was read to me at a young age i watched the cartoon movie when i was super little this was like instilled in me you know this is this is pretty much the only book i can remember my dad reading to me and that's not to say that you know he didn't do other stuff or wasn't uh, wasn't present or anything but you know reading was something that i did with my mom or i did alone but not the hobbit you know and sure that's really special this book is always going to have a deep personal resonance with me but so so obviously this is like this is like one of the things that makes andy andy but you you have since read the books right i guess i shouldn't have assumed that (laughs) no and i i think i've even talked about this uh on a previous episode Uh, i think it was our george r R. martin and one sure uh, I, I tried to read the Lord of the Rings books. Right, right. Uh, after the movies came out. Um, I liked the movies. I, I was never, I've never been much of a fantasy fan. Uh, I'm upfront with that. I respect the genre, but I'm more of a sci-fi and horror genre reader than fantasy. But, you know, to each their own. I've never had a problem with it. I tried to read... Lord of the Rings. Uh, it took me six months to read Fellowship. Sure. Uh, I checked it out from the library, and they had like 19 copies of it, so it didn't matter. I just kept renewing it. Um, it took forever for me to read. It was such a slog for me. Um, not to say it's badly written. It's just not my kind of writing. And I I remember finishing it, turning it in, checking out the two towers, and I got like <laughs> a few, literally like a few pages into two towers and just went i'm not into this i can't i i can't slog through not never mind one more like never mind the one book but like a whole series of this so i returned that and then a while later some friends had recommended to me the hobbit just saying it was a lot easier of a read so i checked out a hobbit from a copy of the hobbit from the library and loved it i got through the whole book it was very pleasant to read it was enjoyable it was fun it was engaging. It was really a really great experience. I love The Hobbit. Uh, it is the only book of the you know Lord of the Rings canon that I have ever successfully gotten through. But I, to me, in my limited capacity, I think it's the best one. You know, and I agree with that. Obviously, I'm a little bit biased, but like, I think that's a really concise but accurate review. It is so much more easier to read than Lord of the Rings, Two Towers, Return of the King. Like those are epics on a really high up scale. I I think people like forget because the movies made the story a lot more accessible, but it's like, and cut a whole lot. It it cut a whole lot. 
Like, you know, Fellowship of the Ring, you're like 50 pages in, 100 pages in, and Sam and Frodo have just left the Shire and are camping out with some elf who isn't even in the movies. And there's just, there's a whole lot of... Fucking Tom Bombadil. Fuck you, Tom Bombadil. (laughs) I hate your ass. Hey, come dairy dog, hop along my hearties. Hobbits, ponies, oh, we are fond of parties. Yeah, there's a, there's a whole lot that goes on, and and you know the movies, the movies did a great job of translating that story, but the Hobbit, the book itself, didn't need translation. You know, it it, it was the first one that Tolkien wrote, and you know the the story is is wonderfully charming, of what like, you know, actually birthed the book. You know, J.R.R. Tolkien was a um, Tolkien was basically teaching at a, at a school. I don't remember if it was a university or more like a primary school. Um, but you know, in the, um, he, he's giving out a test to people and he's, he's grading papers and somebody had turned in a blank page and hadn't done their assignment. And without even really thinking about it, Tolkien writes down the words that opened the book in a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. And within the next year or so he had written the entire epic it took him you know another like couple of decades i want to say to write the um lord of the Rings series but the hobbit just kind of poured out of his pen and i think there's something about just how like how easy the story is you know it's a it's a series of adventures it's it's this charming little hero who isn't the strongest he isn't the smartest he isn't the fastest but he is clever and he's got a really good heart and he's got somebody like helping him get out of his shell get out along the way i think that's another thing about the book like thematically that it makes it such a good thing for children to read it's about like going out and getting out of your shell and having an adventure and and who doesn't want to go out and have an adventure boy girl or or what have you yeah, um, I, I think I remember reading that, like, part of the issue, so Tolkien was a languages guy. He was. He was a linguist yep. by by training. Um, there was a great story a professor of mine in undergrad told me about how um, a professor of his had explained, I think, seeing, seeing some kind of lecture or something uh, where J.R.R. Tolkien was speaking at an academic lecture and he fucking starts quoting Beowulf in its original Old English, just off the top of his head. And it's just like, that's who J.R.R. Tolkien is. He's the guy who, like, learned Old English so that he could memorize Beowulf. He has all these languages in his head. And in a lot of ways, the Lord of the Rings always felt a little bogged down by that, because a lot of it kind of seems like a an excuse for him to take his made-up languages. And- <laughs> right put them into something but the hobbit never felt that way the hobbit was the straightforward story the hobbit the hobbit was a novel by a novelist who was essentially writing for children you know it's you can set it up right next to c.s lewis who was famously a dear friend of J.R.R. tolkien you can put it right next to chronicles of narnia in terms of just comprehension and the ability to follow the fucking thing, which doesn't exist for the rest of that series, you know? Absolutely. You know, the, 
I, I, I talked about the, you know, the, the legacy of, of the Hobbit, you know, you look at any fantasy property from the stuff that R.A. Salvatore writes to Warcraft to Skyrim, anything. And it's either like we are totally copying a lot of the motifs of the Hobbit, or we are throwing this completely on its head because we want to avoid comparisons to Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit. But either way, it is left a, it's inspired everything that came after it. But the other reason I love the book is it's a good book. Like it's, it's easy to comprehend, but more than that, it's, it's an enjoyable adventure and it's well-written, you know, Bilbo, Thorin, Gollum, Gandalf, and more than anything, the dragon smog. These are amazingly crafted characters. Even when Gandalf keeps excusing himself from the narrative and (laughs) (laughs) which even as a kid, I thought this was bullshit. Why does Gandalf keep leaving everybody and then showing up to save their ass? <laughs> narrative convenience yeah really he's a walking deus ex um literally if you understand the cimmerillion um <laughs> it's so it, it's just so cool all these all these situations getting getting kidnapped by these big scary trolls and and making them fight because at the end of the day they're so stupid you can trick them in, into staying out past the sun and you know fighting monsters having having a, a riddle contest with this this evil little creature and you know doing doing the thing that beowulf made a, a standard motif at the end you fight the evil dragon like smog didn't invent the boss monster but he did kind of invent the boss monster with a glowing weak spot because anybody who is familiar with the book or watched the movie, you'll remember the thing with Smaug is his hide was impenetrable, tougher than the hardest armor, except for the one scale that fell out and you got to shoot an arrow through the scale. So, you know, Resident Evil perfected the idea of shooting the glowy weak spot, but I put it to you mm. that that Tolkien uh, was the first one to put it in practice. Uh, it's it's yeah. so it, it's so amazing. It's so wonderful. It's so good and fun. And you know, I love Bilbo. I love the dwarves with all their crazy names. I I love the Hobbit. Uh, sidebar yeah uh we should totally do a love segment on resident evil at some oh, point absolutely uh, that's that's apropos of almost nothing <laughs> but well so i'm still trying to tool around how we handle topics that we both love but there are also things about it we hate and resident evil's perfect for that uh, you know we make a decision about where it will finally lie and then we are happy to criticize or praise it as necessary within that context normally that ends up being like we love this and <laughs> right yeah, well, well there you go then um yeah like to, to ra- i like lord of the rings a lot and and it's a slog <laughs> yeah it's it's damn near incomprehensible in some ways you know, just to, to delve back, and this is my, my final talking point, you know, The Hobbit was met with instant critical praise upon release. And in release, we're talking about 1937. Um, you know, Tolkien was a veteran of World War One, and 
I haven't seen the Tolkien movie, but everyone has made it pretty clear that like there are clear comparisons of Tolkien's time during the war influenced his writing style, both with the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. But, you know, just to put it in context, this was, this was 1937 printing press was, you know, it wasn't a new thing, but it wasn't like today where you can get a book instantly on your Kindle and Mm -hmm. know what the hot new bestsellers list book is this this thing sold out within three months and has never in its in its entire publishing history gone out of print which is you know a wonderful little factoid for me um the hobbit has inspired numerous plays movies video games you know the the two film adaptations there was the 1977 rankin and bass like like that Rankin and Bass, like the guys who made the Rudolph movies cartoon, which was God awfully ugly to look at, but also like this delightful <laughs> little adventure. And and before I can even remember like having the book read to me, I remember watching the movie. Um, and then of mm-hmm. course, you know, in, in the past decade, the live action Peter Jackson trilogy, which is very visually pretty, but, pretty much an empty calorie movie in my opinion um aside from the utterly brilliant misty mountain song that the dwarves sing and the scene between martin freeman martin freeman's bilbo and benedict cumberbatch's smaug which is perfect come now don't be shy step into the light weirdest sherlock prequel ever right (laughs) no i i you know i know so many people that this book has also touched dear friend of the show Catherine. i you know dear one of my dear friends has gotten a uh a tattoo of markings from the map which is a damn good idea of a tattoo and i'm probably going to steal one day um (laughs) You know, people people love this book. I I dearly love this book. You know, it, it gave me warm fuzzies to write up the notes and and reflect on this this deeply personal, this deeply good book. This this like my family doesn't have a lot of heirlooms. It's never really been an important thing. But sure. like I said earlier, this was. This was a copy my dad bought and read to me from the 70s. This is a, this is something my dad got when he was like in college and I'm sitting here holding it in my hands and I'm going to read it to my kids if I ever have them and I'm going to read it to somebody's kids if I don't ever have children of my own. <laughs> I'm going to read this to Chris's I'm going to read this to uh I'm going to read this to our other friend's son. <laughs> That's what I'm going to do. I mean, I, um, I I was more than happy to backseat this one uh, a lot just because I don't, I I don't have the emotional connection to this novel that you do. Uh, And to me, that was the best, you know, part of your notes. This is a great novel. Like I can sit here and put on my English major hat and, you know, delve into the literary analysis of it. Uh, I can, you know, put on my pop culture hat and talk about its influence, and you've already touched on that beautifully, but I think the thing that interested me the most to hear from you, uh, Andrew Richard, is 
just how much it meant to you personally. You know, I think this is a really, really good novel. I like it a lot. Um, it's one of the few fantasy novels that I can honestly say I love, uh, that I, I think we own it. Uh, it's not my copy. I think it's Stephanie's copy, but I'm pretty sure we own it somewhere. I haven't read it in a number of years, but I'm really, really delighted that you brought this to our table today. Like it just, it just warms me and, and makes me feel so delighted. And that's not just because I poured myself like the biggest fuck off glass of red wine before we started (laughs) recording ever. Like literally the size of a hobbit, but um, but no, thank you for bringing this, and thank you for bringing that emotion to it. I I loved this discussion. This was delightful. Thank you. You're very welcome, man. And you know, I I, I do hope that uh, the listeners, you guys enjoyed this just as much because yeah, I mean, this really is one where like I can I can laud it critically, but at the end of the day, I I love this book because. It is it is my childhood wrapped up in a book, and I love it because I love it, and I do love it. So thank you, man. Yeah, you uh, you ready to move on to the next segment? Always, which I'm hoping doesn't have any deep seat. I'm I'm hoping your hate doesn't have any deep seated roots in your childhood. <laughs> you you know, really you know. not. Um, I I. Andrew, I do not come from healthy people. I do not come from Oh. So anyway, um, Andy, as always, I like to intro my segments. You you stole my shtick from me on this one, and you know, you're always welcome to it. Um I like to start off by asking a question to kind of intro my topic. So, Andy, my question to you. What uh in your memory, uh immediate or otherwise, is the funniest or most ridiculous product or advertisement for something that promises to get you six-pack abs that you have witnessed in your life. So, you know, if you're our age, you probably watched Comedy Central a lot. Hell yeah. And, you know, late-night Comedy Central would really start to get some bizarre commercials there would always of course be girls gone wild um (laughs) there would be the weird vhs skit movie that was like jesus fights ninjas and and joey buttafuoco gets a hair transplant um oh yeah yeah right i remember joey buttafuoco specifically (laughs) Um, and, uh, and between those two commercials, you would see the, you know, the ab blaster 6,000 or something. And just the, the notion that so many of us bought where it's like, okay, I'm going to buy this, this vibrating little diode thing, strap it on my stomach and it's going to get me ripped while I sit on the couch. Cause there would be the ones where it's like, do crunches on the couch or, you know, buy this weird chair that'll give you abs and then there was there was the one that was like no 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 just strap some shit we're gonna shake your tummy a bunch while you watch tv and then you'll get six-pack abs and it was the ab blaster the ab cruncher or something it was always completely ridiculous and that is my answer for you that shit has been around since the 50s andrew sure uh okay i appreciate that um I think I, like you, have trouble nailing down, like, one particular this is the worst thing. I do feel there was one that was, like, 
a belt that you could wear like at any time throughout the day. It was like, you can hide it under your clothes and do it at work or you can do it at home. And it was literally like, we will send tiny electrical shocks directly into your abdomen and it will stimulate muscle growth. And that's how you'll get these six pack abs. Yeah, like you, you can't even look it up online now because I just tried and it's all like actual workouts you can do from the couch. <laughs> yeah, no, like, and, and don't bother Googling it. It's all worthless. Oh, yeah. um, f- folks, my hate topic for this uh, episode is the cultural obsession with six pack abs. They're getting the feeling of coming in the gym. And. It's been a minute since I've done a, a health-related topic, so I, I I feel like I need to, you know, give a little bit of background on this, because I feel like, on the surface, there are a lot of ways that I think folks might expect me to tackle this, and maybe I'll feed into those stereotypes, maybe I won't, but I, I want to come from a place that's you know, scientifically informed, but also culturally informed. Um, You cool with that, Andy? Absolutely. Good. So when I talk about six-pack abs, uh, what I am specifically referring to are the rectus abdominis muscles. Uh, To give this and I a little bit of background, the abdominal musculature, uh, which is generally referred to as, you know, in no- regular nomenclature as your core, uh, which if you spend any amount of time on, like, athlete or health Twitter or YouTube, is that, that word alone is controversial. There's so much bullshitty health info out there, you guys. <laughs> um, but uh, so that's, that's your whole, like, abdominal area. Uh, and, and it's a whole lot of different muscle groups that, for the most part, are all, you know, decently important to the structural integrity of your body. You know, your your abdominal area ranges from, like, the bottom of your chest all the way down to the top of your pelvis. Uh, and it, it encompasses the entire waist, you know, from the pectoral muscles and a full belt around the body, which is, you know, it's essential to everything from pushing a car when you're broken down off the side of the road to standing up to being able to do weird crunches on the couch because the infomercial tells you to. Speaking specifically about the rectus abdominis or what we typically refer to as the abs, functionally speaking, these are the muscles that are, you you know exactly what I'm talking about. They're the ones directly, like, on the front of your belly. Like, your belly button, they surround the belly button. They're from right about that lower abdomen down to the top of the pelvis, right there at the, or right there in the center. Structurally speaking, they're responsible for, uh, I mean, basically, bending the lumbar spine. Bending your back. Think crunches. That motion where you are sitting up, and even then a sit-up does isn't fully a rectal abdominis. Uh, did I say rectal abdominis? Yeah, you um, did. <laughs> <laughs> rectus abdominis movement. Um, it's, it's basically a crunch movement. People will tell you that crunches won't give you six-pack abs. There's some truth to that. I'll get into that. But the point is, 
That's what those muscles are responsible for. And granted, you know, you need to be able to do that if you're, say, getting up from a deep, from a reclined position or a laying down position. It's not that they're functional, functionally do nothing, but they are pretty overrated to anything that you functionally need in terms of health or strength. And they have a really weird significance surrounding that. So I'm going to throw a quick set of numbers out there. Okay. The way that you get six-pack abs, the secret to six-pack abs, if you will, and it's not really a secret. I'm being bullshitty. Uh, the, the way to get six-pack abs is essentially to, if you are uh, a cis male have a body fat percentage of around 8 to 12 percent. If you're a cis woman, 15 to 22 percent. Parenthetical, if you are uh, trans, if you are uh, under any kind of hormone or any kind of hormone treatment, any kind of um, surgical alteration uh, from your birth body, these things can kind of vary on a spectrum there. Uh, but essentially, I'm using cis men and women as my gauge here because honestly, that's what the research focuses on. So getting that disclaimer out of the way. But for cis men, 8 to 12% body fat. For cis women, 15 to 22%. Get your body fat there and then maybe do a little bit of direct work on that musculature. That can be crunches. That can be hanging leg raises. That can be certain forms of sit-ups, boat poses, uh, if you're a yoga person. You do a little bit of work and get your body fat there, you will have six-pack abs, basically. That is the key. The better your genetics for something like having a body fat percentage in that range, the less of either of those things you really need to put any effort into. That's something that doesn't get touched on a lot. Genetics are a huge factor to this kind of thing. Uh, I mentioned at the top of this, Andrew, that I don't... I said I don't come from healthy people. That was a bit of a disclaimer. I, familiarly speaking, don't have a lot of people whose genetics would put us in the uh, skinny range. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like... I mean, I, yeah, I feel I, like I'm bred of the same sort of stock. Yeah, like we're we're stocky folk. That's that's the best way to put it. Um, I don't have like you meet lanky folk. You do. There are people out there who just genetically speaking in in, in the weightlifters world, which is what I'm most familiar with. They're called hard gainers. You know, they're the people who can eat a bag of donuts every goddamn morning and never gain a pound. They are so rail thin. Yeah, that's that's metabolic rate and it's genetics. It's it's exactly what you're talking about. You know, it's the thigh gap, which as far as I know, hasn't become like the big it trend for, you know, people of the feminine persuasion to make sure you have the thigh gap. That was the exact same thing where people were having to sit here and break down. It's like, do you know how you have the thigh gap? It's if your parents have the thigh gap or your grandparents have the thigh gap. So I I hear you. Yeah. I mean, those, 
there's our in the weightlifting forums that I follow, one of the most common questions is basically, how do I become a great weightlifter? And the most common and frankly the best answer for that is make sure that your parents were great weightlifters. Hmm. That's a serious answer that sure. like coaches throw around. Serious is the wrong word there. That's that's to put people in their place. The fact of the matter is genetics are a huge factor there. Yeah. The idea that anyone quote-unquote, anyone could get six-pack abs. I mean, theoretically speaking, if, if we're just talking like not a real human being who exists in the real world, we're talking about just a theoretical person whose body fat is, let's say, I mean, let's say it's a cis male, mid-20s to early, mid-20s to mid-30s, um, 30% body fat. Knowing nothing about this person, I could probably explain to them what they would need to do in terms of calorie restrictions and an exercise regimen to get them six-pack abs in uh, six to 12 weeks. Order. Call the number on your screen or said check or money order for the amount shown plus shipping and handling. Must be 18 or older to call. A, will they be healthy at the conclusion of that? The answer is no. B, will they be able to maintain those abs after that 6 to 12 weeks? Maybe? Maybe. Probably not. Um, How long are they willing to keep up the starvation diet that I would have to put them on? And the ridiculous exercise regimen that I would have to put them on. Um, C, do they have a good doctor? Because those body fat percentages I quoted to you are not really the best out there for health. Um, Andy, are you a Bruce Lee fan? Oh, absolutely. Okay, yeah. Um... I reached out to friend of the show, David. Uh, hey, David, uh, you get two shout outs in a row. One for giving me my first comic book and one for the discussion we had about six pack abs a few weeks ago. Good on you, David. Um, <laughs> uh, David's one of my like go to people when I want to bounce ideas off about, you know, diet, exercise, health, performance, all this stuff. And he has been for years. Um, when I talked to him about this, he made a point to bring up and he's a huge Bruce Lee fan. And this is a story he told me years ago, and he reminded me of it here. Bruce Lee famously had a ridiculously low body weight. He had a ridiculous uh, exercise regimen, and he had a ridiculous dietary regimen, and he also had ridiculously good genetics. Bruce Lee famously uh, died pretty young, and... One of the theories, one of the prevailing theories as to why he died so young was the fact that he had such a low body fat percentage. If you can show me a picture of Bruce Lee without abs, I will probably assume it's photoshopped because he just has had always had them. But body fat percentages that low can result in organ failure, renal failure, kidney failure, liver failure, heart failure gastrointestinal issues it's the kind of thing that frankly if you if you are not genetically disposed towards it it can kind of kill you 
Yeah, I mean, I feel like not to not to turn this to a completely different topic, but I mean, you know, this reminds me of a lot of the same problems that, you know, people who suffer from anorexia or bulimia wind up going through. There there is such a fine line whether it's just aesthetics or physical health between too skinny and too fat, too overweight. Yeah. And, I mean, I don't have to tell you, we demonize fat in this culture. We demonize both people considered fat as in arbitrarily designated as overweight, but also just having fat in general. There's, There's a belief that fat in general of any kind is unhealthy. And you need fat. You need fat to survive. Andy, you've done keto before. How much of that is eating fat? Yeah, the most of it. Yeah. And there's a reason for that. You know, you... I, and I I have argued against keto before on this, on this very podcast. I talked about all the things that were wrong with keto. One thing that keto actually gets right is the fact that it does not demonize fat as a consumable. A lot of people who follow keto do still demonize fat as something to have on your body. And, I mean, don't get me wrong. If you are if you are a cis dude with 8% body fat and that's just what you naturally sit at, okay, that's what you naturally sit at. I don't want to demonize being overly skinny. And I'm trying to walk a fine line in this argument. I don't know if I'm doing a good job at all. Um, but... The thing I want to emphasize is there is an artificial standard to six-pack abs that is, quite frankly, dangerous to chase, you know? I Did you ever watch a documentary, Andy, called Bigger, Faster, Stronger, or ever hear of it? Bigger, Faster, Stronger. No, I can't say that is one I'm familiar with. Okay. Uh, I think it's on Netflix still, but it is a documentary... Um, the documentarian who runs it or or who directs it and is kind of in it is, uh, you know, he works in a gym. He's an amateur power lifter. His older brother is actually uh, a very, f- a somewhat famous power, power lifter named Mark Bell. Um, the documentarian's name is Chris Bell, but it's an entire documentary about steroid usage. And there's a brief section of it that I really, really liked and I wish they'd spent more time on but he interviews basically performers in other categories other than sports using performance enhancing drugs it's a it's a documentary about performance enhancing drugs and he basically goes he goes to a porn star and asks if they use Viagra or other like dick pill kind of stuff and the porn stars are like absolutely 100%. Are you kidding? I need to fuck for 12 hours. That's my job. <laughs> I 100% use it doesn't matter how hot my co-stars are. It doesn't matter how like virile I think I yeah. am. I 100% need to use performance enhancing drugs right. for this. So I'm coming day and night. And there's a part where he is meeting with these fitness models. And these are not people, these are people who are advertising swimwear. They're advertising your gym equipment. A, number one, they're not using that gym equipment to get those abs. Sorry. 
The people in those infomercials that Andy and I referenced at the beginning, they're not actually doing that program. They never have been. They were hired to do the advertising because they already had those bodies. On top of that, they are artificially crafting their bodies to do that. They are using whatever substances they need to in order to ensure that they look the way that they do for their photo shoots. Just like professional bodybuilders, the reason they look so like defined when they go up on stage is because they are effectively in levels of body fat percentage at that time of like two, three, four, five, six percent sometimes like less, which they do literally just for that competition day, right. which they've gotten down to so that they can, for the, you know, hour and a half that this bodybuilding show is happening for the afternoon that this photo shoot is happening, they are down to a body fat percentage that can reflect this frankly unstable, unsustainable level of appearance. And if you try and do that long term, you just can't. Your body isn't designed to do it. Yeah. And I feel like this is another time where I'm just going to rant the media. You know, if it's not 24 hour news, it's advertising. Sure. But I, I got, I got one thing, and and I think this will tie into, you know, what you're about to say. Officially, last I checked, the strongest man in the world is Hathor Bjornsson. Uh, also, I think he just won World's Strongest Man. Yeah. yeah, also known as the Mountain from Game of Thrones. Look up pictures of Hathor, and like I'm looking at it right now. He didn't have a six pack when he was the Mountain. You look at most of the pictures where he's shirtless. He doesn't have. I I, I can find one picture where he kind of has six pack abs, and he is the strongest man in the world officially and he's and he's also absolutely on steroids because world's strongest man does not drug test well well, there you go don't know if anyone knows that (laughs) um yeah no this is that's strength strength is not necessarily healthy i guarantee you the people at you know at ipf worlds the powerlifting international championships i guarantee you most of those people are not healthy Like with most athletics, they are pushing their bodies to a point that is long-term unsustainable because they're trying to maximize their performance for a particular competition. At that point, the competition matters more than their health. That is a choice that professional athletes make. You are not a professional athlete. You listening to me right now. Andy, are you a professional athlete? Fuck no. Yeah. I'm not a professional athlete either. I might be the strongest person that Andy knows. And I am not very strong by weightlifter standards. Not even a little bit. I mentioned deadlifting 400 pounds at the beginning of this episode. That's an actual goal I have for the end of 2019. I want to finally hit 400 pounds. That is less than double my body weight. The world record deadlift right now is by a guy named Eddie Hall, who has actually beaten Hafthor Bjornsson in World's Strongest Man in the past. And I believe it was an 1,100-pound deadlift that he did. That is ungodly. 
And I will never meet anything. Granted, the man is like 300 some, 400 some pounds when he did that. But that was 1,100 pounds. I'm not that strong, you guys. I don't have six pack abs either. Occasionally, I accidentally kind of like get a little definition in my stomach, but just a little. And I'm not trying for it, but my body fat is nowhere near that level. And it never will be. And I don't really want it to be, you know? I The amount of effort it takes to get to those body fat percentages. What you have to do with your life. What you have to do with your body to hit that standard. Isn't healthy for most of us. Can't be sustained long term for most of us. And honestly, like... I keep railing this point, but I think for me, the biggest thing is I hate, the thing I hate about the conceit of six-pack abs is how much it is given to us as a standard of beauty, when honestly, it's just a standard of how privileged you are. It's a standard of... When you see the dudes lined up in 300, they trained hard for that movie. They trained very hard for that movie. You can go on YouTube and see how Gerard Butler and all those other motherfuckers trained to look like Spartans. A, Spartans didn't really look like that. B, guarantee you, all of those actors, or if not all, the vast, vast, vast majority of them, were working with personal trainers, personal nutritionists on top of the training regimen they were already doing, and were getting some chemical assistance. Was that B or C? I don't even remember. <laughs> that was B. I was going to say C. A lot more exposed peni. I mean... I just keep... now. I'm sorry, I just flashed back to Wild Things and Kevin Bacon's exposed dong, like a baby's arm holding an apple. <laughs> Which is my gold standard for Hollywood exposed peni. And just, sorry, I, I, I needed a moment. And even then, in that movie, he didn't really have six-pack abs. He kind of had, like, some definition, but the man looked good. Yeah. I don't want to, I, I don't want to glorify the opposite. I don't. This isn't about attacking people. This is about attacking an industry. This is about attacking a standard. This is about attacking a cultural norm. This is about saying, y'all, if you see something that looks artificial, it is probably artificial. It is almost certainly artificial. The people shown to us are selected specifically because they already match this thing. Those infomercials we watched, they cast that way. The movies we watch, they cast that way. The standards presented to you are not important. So I want to close out this section just to remind everyone. It isn't that everyone with six-pack abs is a terrible person or is weak or unhealthy. An individual might be, but it's not that every one of them is. And you know what? You, dear listener, you, person hearing my voice, who just listened to me rant and Andy be weirdly silent throughout most of it. Um, hey, I was giving you your moment. <laughs> fuck you. 
Uh, I love you so much, but you're way too nice. Um, Dear listener, I don't think you're a bad person if you want six-pack abs. Or if you're attracted to them. Honestly, like, if you like... If you like your pornography to include, you know, six-pack abs and people downing Viagra so that they can fuck for 12 hours, um, you're not a bad person for that. Oh, I watch a man and woman making love. I'm like, oh, do you like the guy to have a small, half-flaccid penis? He goes, no, I like big, hard, throbbing cock. You're not. But the way that those things are valued is outright dangerous. And it's only thanks to a public misunderstanding of health and fitness. And that's not okay. Yeah. And, and have your fantasies. I don't want to take anyone's fantasies away from them. But I do want you to be able to separate your fantasies from your realities. From your, what your, you know, pie-in-the-sky desires might be. From what is actually okay. And yeah. That's that's what I wanted to get at. Andy, any final thoughts on this one before we go on to our question? I, I mean, you know, in the in the 1500s, high body fat percentage was a sign of great attractiveness because it meant you had enough excess money that you weren't starving. So, you know, physical perception of of attractiveness and strength is purely subjective and always has been and always will be. So I thank you for railing against it. You're very welcome. (laughs) Also, just putting this out there, Latinos never, never, never supported thigh gaps. So Andy, I a little bit blame white people for this shit. Important. Just needed to put that out there. (laughs) As with all other things, white people are to blame. Uh, You ready for our question? (laughs) Yes. Because this one is... uh, it, the, you know, the first um the first genuine somebody reached out and gave us a question i feel like we've had in a while a couple episodes at least yeah, a couple of episodes yeah, not that long not that long but yeah. so yeah so to w- without any further ado dear lhr i have recently been told that my biological grandfather who i have never met is interested in meeting me and trying to have a relationship of sorts Some backstory, he is my mother's father. However, he and my mother had a rift when she was a teenager, and he agreed to allow her stepfather to adopt her. I don't know much about it other than it had something to do with him trying to convert her to becoming a Mormon. Now, my mother passed away over 18 years ago. I feel like that was the best time to start that relationship. As a teenager, I could have used the extra support in my life after losing a parent. The fact that he didn't do that makes me feel as though he doesn't have any genuine interest in me. Now, I'm in my 30s and have never felt the need to connect with him. However, I can't help but be curious about him as he was my biological grandfather. I believe he has many other children besides my mother, so there is a possibility that meeting him could open up a whole new set of aunts, uncles, and cousins who I've never met either. As I've recently become a father myself, I have a new appreciation for familial bonds. Any advice? Okay. We uh, we do need to give this person a name. Uh, so we have someone who discovers a long-lost relative and is tasked with 
you know, figuring out what to do with that information. I have an idea, but Andy, do you have any first? You know, I was sitting here being like, how far the rabbit hole do I want to go down? I, I have a feeling that that your idea is better than the Royal Tannenbaum's reference I was cooking up in my head. So go ahead. I mean, I was going to go with uh, the singular, I don't know if it's the singular best, but one definitely one of the top three best Adam Sandler films of all time, Mr. Deeds. Oh, that's a great one. <laughs> Especially because now you can do that cool ass, like, want to touch your feet drop. <laughs> your great uncle did not let me change his socks for him either. I like feet. I do not know why. Yes, Mr. Deeds, I'm here for it. Okay, sweet. Um, all right, you read the question. Should I start with uh, my initial thoughts? Yeah, go for it, my man. Okay, so, uh, Mr. Deeds, uh, I still don't remember your first name because the movie was just called Mr. Deeds and everyone calls you Deeds in the movie, so uh, it's all good. Deeds. I I think before anything else, I am going to say to you that um, there is one part of your question that stands out to me that I'm going to touch on very briefly and then pass the mic back to Andy and then probably talk a little bit more uh, down the way. But something you say here makes me question a little bit how you're attacking this. Uh, And it's specifically the part where you say, uh, as a teenager, you could have used the extra support in your life uh, after losing a parent. And the fact that he didn't reach out makes you feel like he doesn't have any genuine interest in you. I don't want to write off your feelings. I don't. Uh, and I want to be clear with that up front. I do, however, want to say that the that logic to me, to my ears, doesn't go from point A to point B. If he didn't reach out back then, there if, if you want to give him the benefit of the doubt, there are many reasons why he might not have done that. He might have thought that it wasn't his place to. He, I, I don't know if he knew exactly what was going on. I don't know if he thought that he might interfere with your grief. Uh, if maybe you would have, he might think that you would have viewed him as trying to step in and take over for a parent that, you know, you admit there was some estrangement there. That was a very complicated situation. I'm not saying that you need to discount the feelings there, but to say that because he didn't reach out back then, he must not have any genuine interest in you is assuming a lot. And if nothing else, I would encourage you to interrogate that and if not look to have compassion about it, at least have perspective about that. You don't know what he was feeling back then. So assuming it, and writing him off because of that immediately without more thought is maybe not the best way to go. Andy? Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree with that. I I don't want to advise you to look at the glass too half full or too half empty. What I will say, you know, you, you mentioned you've recently become a father yourself. I wonder if your biological grandfather is aware of this. I'm assuming here in the internet age that he is. 
And, you know, there is a question of how much of it is this man wants to have a relationship with his great grandson, um, which, you know, I'm not saying that that is a bad motivation or anything like that. I also think about a dear friend of mine who was estranged from her father and uh, he was living in Mexico and I believe got cancer and, and went pretty suddenly. And in the last couple months of my friend's father's life, she and her sister you know, restarted and rekindled a relationship with their father and also did get the thing that, you know, you mentioned you're at least somewhat interested in where an entire second family, an entire new wing of their family who were all living in Mexico, um, you know, opened up and they, they started, you know, forming all these new relationships with, with cousins and half siblings and the like. And, and that was a, a thing of great joy for my friend. So, you know, I'm, I'm ever the optimist. I'm, I'm the, the dopey smiling golden retriever to Alex's, <laughs> uh, you know, squinting, uh, nonplussed cat. And I, 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 you know, I, I sit here and go, what is the worst thing that could happen? You you open yourself up to be hurt again by this man who has caused you some emotional pain in the past. That is certainly a risk. But, you know, if, if the guy is interested and, and is, is trying to put forth the effort now to have a relationship, I think... In the spirit of family, if you if you can forgive your grandfather, which I think is is really the question here, um, if you decide you can, then you should try to reforge this bond with him. Believe it or not, Andy, um, curmudgeonly nonplussed cat that I am, <laughs> uh, you and I are, I think, more in agreement about this then i think you know i think i really like your caveat about if you know if deeds can forgive his grandfather um that's important because you know you say that your mother passed away 18 years ago um you know that's that's a fair amount of time but that also some people never get over that um, some people, uh, and we don't know what your mother said of your grandfather to you. You say that you don't know a whole lot about the situation. That could be a blessing. That could be a curse. You don't know. I, I will um, say, you know, all, all my positive stuff aside, the, the, uh, slightly vague and, and I'm not blaming you for being vague. Maybe you don't know yourself, but the, the idea that he their relationship fell out over religion is troubling it's troubling to you i just in the in the in the fact that like i speak speaking as as somebody with my own faith myself i very much my my skin starts to crawl over parents or in this case grandparents trying to assert religious beliefs onto others that's all i mean okay yeah i i I don't disagree with that i was i was curious uh more than anything 
I, I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah. No, you're good. You're good. Um, this is a discussion, Andrew. We 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 have a back and forth. I, I like our back and forth. Um, and I assume that you know Deeds likes our back and forth too because he wrote in. Uh, I didn't even make it rhyme. Uh, so all this to say, Deeds. Given the scenario, I think Andy's right that you don't have a whole lot to lose. You know, if you now, granted. Start easy. I 100% agree, or will state up front. Start easy. He says he wants to meet and, you know, try to have a relationship. Meet first. If you, like, start with a phone call, if he lives near you, maybe, you know, meet up and grab a cup of coffee or lunch or something. You don't know this man. And... Blood doesn't matter as much as the fact that you have zero knowledge of anything about this dude. It is entirely possible that you could meet up with him and he could immediately try and get you to convert to the Church of Latter-day Saints. And, you know, we all loved Book of Mormon, but that's immediate red flag right there. Yeah. So, yeah. You're not you're not a bad person if you give him a chance. You're not you're not a bad person either way in this situation, whatever decision you make, but you're not a bad person if you give him a chance. If you, you know, meet up with him, maybe exchange some emails or have a couple phone calls, grab coffee or dinner a couple of times, have a few conversations, feel him out a little bit and things seem cool. Maybe open up that door a little bit wider. Maybe you can start, you know, asking into that side of the family. Maybe asking into what happened with your mother. Maybe allowing him to meet your child and partner and whatever else. Um, You know, take your time with it. I don't know how old this grandfather is, Um I'm I'm running on the assumption because you don't mention it in your question that this isn't a situation to your knowledge like the one Andy referenced where you know someone very suddenly was terminally ill but it's okay to feel it out see if it's safe see if it's okay see if he's on the level and then take it from there um and it's okay to be interested in kind of expanding your family i think that you have a really rare opportunity here i don't assume you'll regret it if you don't take it up um you have your own family and family is about who you choose it's not who you're related to i 100 percent believe that but you know Give it a shot. There could be a connection here. You could learn things about your mother you didn't know. You can learn things about an entire side of people related to you that you didn't know. And the worst thing that happens is you meet up with the dude. He, you know, fakes his way through three or four really nice dinners. And then when you start actually really getting to know him, then he exposes himself for being someone hella problematic. And then you just cut the ties. Yeah. You know, don't, don't, never, never give him money. Never start a business (laughs) venture with him. But, you know, there, if that gives you a little extra security, you can always just pull the plug on this again. And you would not be a wrong person for doing that if, 
you know, your own family or even just your own personal emotional stability becomes at risk in any way. Yeah. You, you always have the ability to walk away. So with that in mind, you know, if you're, by the way, if you, all this also presumes that you have the uh, emotional capacity to deal with all this while you have a newborn baby. Um, since, yeah, that takes a lot of time and effort and energy and a whole lot of other things. So make sure that you're taking care of that as well. You know, don't let this, you know, wreck your priorities. But I say give it a shot, you know, send them a message. If you had get a phone number, make, make a phone call. Um, give it a shot. The worst thing that can happen is it doesn't work out and you know that there's somebody out there who you gave a chance to and they squandered it because you, Deeds, are 100% worth this opportunity. And if they squander it, that is their fucking fault. Absolutely. Think we got that one, Andy? I think so. And, uh, you know, let us let us know how this uh, this plays out, Deedsy. We're, we're going to be yeah. very curious yeah. in following up on the situation. We would love a follow-up. Absolutely. Um, if you want to, if you've sent us a question and you want to give us your follow-up, or if you haven't sent us a question yet and you want to get in on this to get our perfectly unqualified advice about any sort of relationship topic, be it with a grandfather or you know somebody in the workplace, a friend, a pet, what have you, you can send those into love hate relationship podcast at gmail.com where we promise we'll read them. Yep, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, to, uh, YouTube, or even TuneIn Radio. Hey, Mom. Um, I don't know what my cursing level was like on this episode, uh, but I love you. Thank you for being so supportive. You are amazing. Uh, you can also tweet us at LHRPod. That's L-H-R-P-O-D with your questions. And you can follow us there to keep up with new episodes. That's right. Uh, if you're in the mood and you want to follow us personally, uh, you can find me, Andy Bowell, at JovoCop2113 on Twitter. Mm -hmm. uh, you can also follow Andy's other podcast, Cult Fiction, uh, where he and a certain somebody who I'm quite fond of uh, talk about cult movies. That's right. Andy, I had to plug your podcast for you. And what's the, but what's the uh, what's the social meets for that one? Uh, well, so yeah, my other podcast is Cult Fiction, where we're probably not going to watch the Hobbit trilogy anytime soon, but we do watch no. cult movies, um, and that is Cult Fiction Cast on Twitter and Instagram. Yeah. And I'm at A underscore X underscore R-U-I-Z on both Twitter and Instagram. There you can see my weird little before after uh, 2019, 20, 2009 photo, uh, as well as my weightlifting videos. Maybe I'll have deadlifted 400 pounds by the time this comes out. Probably not. <laughs> uh, but thanks for listening, y'all. And as always, tell your enemies.
sipping one wine while and talks to Mariah. Either way, sipping my wine while Andy and Mo talk. (laughs) Hi, Mo. I love you. Loves you.